a statistic came out that 60% of the children who they surveyed said that they believed that their parents weren't emotionally available because they were tethered to technology and weren't able to help these young people cope with bullying, cyberbullying and anxiety and depression and other mental health issues. And this is, you know, a very <laughs> pronounced um, statistic in terms of what our kids are experiencing firsthand because of our digital distraction as parents. But I think, again, helping parents understand why it is, you know, why is it that I'm seduced by the screen? What is it about it that preys on my psychological vulnerabilities? And assuring parents that there's nothing necessarily wrong with you. You're not a bad parent. You are responding the way you were supposed to psychologically and biologically. It's just that these technologies have been intentionally designed to captivate us. And whenever I speak to different audiences, I say technology is brilliant, but we have to be in control of it because if we're not, it can rob us of our two most important commodities in life and that is our time and our attention. Greetings everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Even, and especially in the case of this week's episode, when that conversation needs to start happening within the walls of our own home. Now, do you remember the world before the internet? Seems like a weird question, I know. Do you remember a world where children built forts rather than played Fortnite? I can remember that world so, so clearly when setting boundaries was as simple as closing the bedroom door or in my case, the day your your dad received one too many outrageous phone bills and literally unplugged the telephone for a week. Teenage life over as I knew it. Now compare that to some of the stories from my next guest, children who are hiding underneath the, the duvet being bullied at, at 3 a.m., as a result of connectivity and and the amplification of digital devices, um, parents that are struggling to set boundaries both in their own connectivity and those of their families, um, and the world generally in which we live, in which the rules have changed and all of us are running very hard as teachers, peers, mentors, leaders and parents to catch up. Now, in the world of influence, there's pro- probably... No form more powerful or wide-reaching than the influence we have over the next generation. And I'm, I'm probably thinking a lot about that at the moment. I have a, a new baby who will be arriving at some point literally in the next few weeks. I also have a young daughter who I can already feel watching my every technology move and feeding it back to me. Someone asked me recently how I, how I was planning on handling social media for my daughter and At the time, I laughed and I just said, look, you know what, a decade from now, social media is going to look so different. It's not even worth me worrying about. She's literally going to be beaming her boyfriend into her eyeballs while I'm talking to her. But in all all seriousness, how, how do you prepare for that? What questions should you be asking yourself? What behavior should you be modeling? And this isn't just a question for parents. This is a question for anyone that comes into contact with young people on a regular basis. 
anyone who's trying to navigate a digital age where no one and especially not even the technology creators themselves fully understand the rules or consequences of the game we are now playing. So how do we face this new digital dilemma with optimism rather than fear? How do we instill or model resilient, healthy and empowered relationships with technology? I know for myself there was a world of questions here, which is why, which is why today. I'm so excited to introduce actually a two-part, our very first two-part podcast series because it feels like a question that is deserved of, of two separate conversations. Both of those conversations are with the incredible Dr. Christy Goodwin. Christy is somebody who I have been watching for for an, a, a couple of years grow in infamy as one of the leading influencers in this space. She She's a children's technology and development expert, a speaker, an author, and also a parent who has committed to her life to translating the latest research on leading young people through this digital age. And it starts, you guessed it, with first leading ourselves. Now, most importantly, at least to me, What I want you to notice in this conversation is that Christy doesn't believe in guilt, which I feel in a world where all of our decisions in relation to technology seem to be increasingly coming under fire, in particular when it comes to parenting, is as refreshing as it is insightful. In this podcast, in part one of this podcast, we are going to dive into infobesity and address what it takes to tame this new information beast that seems to live in our homes, in our offices, in our pockets. Why our ancient brains are struggling to cope in a digital world. Tips to prevent and manage techno tantrums, (laughs) both in children and in adults. How our own digital habits inform how the young people who surround us also engage with devices. And as a tip... That age-old parenting phrase, do as I say and not as I do, which was another one of my of my father's favorites, is just about as effective now as it was then. Effective parental war zone tested strategies to implement digital boundaries. The neuroscience governing our engagement with digital platforms. And finally, and this one totally changed my perspective, why we should avoid using or removing digital devices and connectivity as a punishment tool. So grab the digital device of your choice, find a quiet spot, drop the guilt, and prepare to make some empowered choices in relation to how technology can enhance, and it can, rather than control your life and the lives of those you love and lead. So please enjoy my conversation, part one, with the crazy talented... Dr. Christy Goodwin. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Christy Goodwin. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I we for anyone that's listening, just know that we I literally had to stop a conversation <laughs> mid-flow before we got on here. We just Christy arrived and we just jumped straight into this topic and I, I've literally had to ask for a pause so I can press record. So before we get back into the topic of 
digital parenting. And as you noticed, I have a thousand questions just of my own. So I'm going to try my best not to hog this interview just with my own personal list. Um, I'm going to kick off with a question that I always kick off with. And that is, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And it's always interesting asking anybody. And I think it's going to be interesting to know from you because you're a researcher, which by nature usually is an introverted task. Absolutely. Look, you nailed me. Um, I am an introvert and I actually thought it was something that would limit my capacity to be a speaker and to be a communicator. Um, I was under the very false belief that if I wanted to be a successful speaker, I needed to assume the qualities of an extrovert. I had made the erroneous assumption, I think, which many of us do, that behavioural characteristics are predictive of being an extrovert. So I had falsely assumed that to be a successful speaker I needed to um, have some of those extroverted qualities so I needed to be enigmatic I needed to be um, very gregarious I needed to be magnetic and it wasn't until I started working um, with a, a mentor who confided in me that she actually saw herself as an introvert and it was like a giant big permission slip that she gave me that it is okay in fact it, it was a, a really essential skill that she thought to be an introvert and be a successful speaker um, so it was actually through a whole series of serendipitous events that I did become a speaker. I had been a teacher, um, again, who you, we often think are, are tend to be more extroverted personalities. Um, I then become an academic, and that's where I really retreated into those introverted qualities. Um, you know, I could spend hours, and I still do. I'm a, a self-confessed nerd um, who relishes time just diving into science and research. Um, and I thought that that... Um, I had assumed that everybody shared that love of research and science and I realised when I became a speaker that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, so yes, introverted qualities are definitely where I sit um, and that is a challenge if I'm really transparent as somebody who is a business owner as someone who has a small team who is often requiring my attention, as somebody who's a mum whose young children are often not requesting, they're demanding my attention, um, as somebody who is a speaker whose audience is demanding their attention and also as somebody who does work in the media, um, you know, where media are demanding your attention, I found it something really difficult um, to manage and it's only in recent times that I've really recognised that I need opportunities by myself, I need isolated time to recharge and reinvigorate so that I can turn up and be, you know, the, the speaker and the commentator um, that, that I need to be and so having those opportunities, um, those lines of demarcation have been really important in recent times um, so that I can honour those introverted um, qualities uh, that I have. And this is where it's interesting because technology really makes us very accessible and I have found, you know, managing social media accounts for myself, for my business, um, the demands of email means that we're constantly depleting our energy and constantly in demand of, of other people and their time agendas too. So taking back some power in that has been really transformational, again, in honouring my introverted way of being. So we're obviously going to, the point today was to talk about digital digital parenting and I think two things are important to point out with that one is that this is a no guilt mm. conversation and that's really important to me to point out that the that the intention of this interview the intention of this conversation I mean you are sat there 37 weeks pregnant <laughs> I am sat here 17 weeks pregnant and we both know the amount of guilt that's already available mm. 
And so we're just, we're not going to go there. We're, no. The the intention is we're going to stick to facts. We're going to stick to some things that work, some guidelines that have been useful to other people. And we might even raise questions that we don't have. Mm. You don't, I don't have any answers, <laughs> none, um, but that you don't have answers to or no one knows right mm. now. I think that the the second part that's important is the word parenting and digital parenting and that, you know, our relationship with technology is equally as important, if not more important, than our children's relationship with technology because one flows directly down into the other. And so before we get into the parenting part, we were, you had mentioned prior to me pressing record the word, I think it was infobesity Mm. was mentioned and it came from the fact that there are so many channels now. And again, being an introvert, you've got the daily demands of having conversations on the phone, whether you're on stages, whether you're having meetings, whether you're just in demand one way, shape or form. And then you go home and you've got little little people hungry for your attention. And then your partner comes home or maybe, you know, they come home first. Either way, there's a big person that's hungry for your attention. Mm. And then you finally get some time at around about 9 p.m. or in the cracks somewhere and you're now out there into the world of the wider web that is feels like hungry for your attention. And that's not getting any smaller. You know, before mm. it was email, then it went to email and text, then it went to email, text, instant message, um, Snapchat, WeChat, WhatsApp, Facebook, um, Insta, LinkedIn, and now organizations mm. are introducing their own internal um, web boards, task management software, 101 channels that you're supposed to check or that are beeping at you. Let's talk first, how do we manage that, the infobesity on our own mm-hmm. part? And we're going to keep coming back to this question over and over again, but can you just talk a little bit about it? Look, my big message whenever I'm speaking to anybody is that we need to tame our technology habits and not be a slave to the screen. And one of the reasons that we feel obligated to be you know, checking our phones, um, we've got data out that's telling us now most adults are no longer more than one metre away from their phone throughout a 24-hour period. Um, we've got data telling us that 17% of us check social media on the bathroom, uh, whilst in the bathroom, I should say. So we oh, are yeah, toilets the um, only time. But you can... And there's a name for it. It's called toilet tweeting, I'm told. Um, But we are constantly bombarded. um, I call it, you know, screen saturation. We are living and working and breathing in this tsunami of screens. And our brains have a cognitive load. They've got a a threshold. And when we are constantly being saturated with information, um, this is when our brains reach that, that cognitive load and we get these feelings of overwhelm. So some simple things that we can do, you know, some ways, pragmatic ways we can tame our technology. One of the simplest things to do is to disable alerts and notifications or to disable them at particular times of the day. So if we want to carve out sacred time with our partner, if we want to walk through the front door when we get home and we want to be present and connected, we can ironically use the tools on our devices. We can set up schedules. We can can use management tools that will actually disable alerts and notifications for um, set periods of time. We can have this set up on a recurring basis so we don't even need to think about it. Um, But we can actually tame how that information comes to us because this inf- this idea of infobesity the reason we're grappling with it is because we have ancient brains in what we call a high-tech 
world. And our brains used to go and forage for information. We would go and search for it. That's something we have been wired to do, biologically wired to do as humans. But now, because we have the way technology has been designed to prey on our psychological vulnerabilities, the information comes to us. We get pings, we get, we get alerts, we get a notific- no- notifications. So we've lost control over directing and orienting our attention. Um, this is why you know, managing our attention spans, I believe, is the number one skill we need in this 21st century. So in terms of taming our habits, you know, simple things like disabling alerts and notifications, uh, scheduling when we want to check social media, for example. I know many adults admit that technology is the rabbit hole. You know, we often unlock our phone to perhaps make a phone call and that blue icon of Facebook or the Instagram icon grabs our attention, we gravitate towards it. And before long, that phone call has been missed and we have been sucked into that vortex of social media. So giving ourselves firm boundaries or personal policies as to when we'll use it. Um, Trying to avoid one of the biggest myths I see in terms of, of trying to manage this infobesity is that we should multitask to accommodate. And multitasking is an erroneous way of approaching. Um, I have to say men are right and women, we as a gender, are wrong. Multitasking is a myth and the neuroscience confirms this. A couple of things happen in the brain when we multitask. One of the things is our brain dumps a whole lot of cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and the neuroscience confirms stressed brains can't learn. We can't remember things. The other thing our brain does when we multitask, and many of us do, you know, you only need to look at anyone's internet browser and the 15 tabs that are open, um, the pings of emails that are coming through, you know, we're trying to send a text message whilst we're watching our kids at ballet practice or soccer practice. The next thing that happens is our brain releases, sorry, depletes our supply of glucose. So we get really tired and we get that foggy feeling. Um, Again, we can't perform optimally and we can't remember things. But the really interesting thing, we've done brain scans and actually found that when we multitask, information goes to the wrong part of the brain. So instead of going to a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is the memory center, it's where we store our long-term memory, when we multitask, it goes to a part of the brain called the striatum. So we can't actually remember information. So in our attempt, um, as we often do, to try and accommodate this infobesity, we think that multitasking is the solution and it's actually the enemy um, because it isn't allowing us to do things more quickly. Um, The research tells us again that it often takes us, we make more errors, we have poorer recall when we multitask um, and it actually takes us longer. Um, You know, often Um, a task that should have been a five-minute task because we've tried to do six other tasks in the same thing ends up being a 20-minute task at a a fraction of the optimal output as well. I've actually, funnily enough, I've got some stats here that I was looking into before meeting you, which is there was a study by the University of California, San Diego, found that people every single day are inundated with 34 gigabytes of information, Mm. which is a sufficient quantity to overload a laptop within a week. Yes, that's 174 newspapers, just to put it in a, mm-hmm. in a context. So 174 newspapers a day. Of data. Of data. Yes. 100 years ago, the average was 50 books worth of data in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, managing, managing all of that. And then you've got this added piece. So we've got managing all of that. And having our own, as you said, boundaries, sacred time. I love that languaging. Mm-hmm. Carving out, firstly, for yourself. What sacred time do I want for myself? Mm-hmm. Then what sacred time do I want with my partner? And then what sacred time do we want as a family? Mm-hmm. 
you were telling me that there was another study recently that just came out a couple of days ago mm. about the impact of this infobesity on our children. Yes. So a study by uh, Queensland government called Growing Up in Queensland, it's a longitudinal data set and they looked at uh, the, one of the, the, the aspects of this study involved surveying, surveying children aged 4 to 18 years and one of the really, um, I think, alarming bits of data that came out of this that isn't, you know, again, not in, intended to induce parental guilt um, but the a statistic came out that 60% of the children who they surveyed in that age range said that they believed that their parents weren't emotionally available because they were tethered to technology and weren't able to help these young people cope with bullying, cyberbullying and anxiety and depression and other mental health issues. And this is, you know, a very <laughs> pronounced um, statistic in terms of what our kids are experiencing firsthand because of our digital distraction as parents. Um, but I think, again, helping parents understand why it is, you know, why it is, why is it that I'm seduced by the screen? What is it about it that preys on my psychological vulnerabilities? And assuring parents that there's nothing necessarily wrong with you. You're not a bad parent. You are responding the way you were supposed to psychologically and biologically. It's just that these technologies have been intentionally designed to captivate us and they have this is when I whenever I speak to to different audiences I say technology is brilliant but we have to be in control of it because if we're not it can rob us of our two most important commodities in life and that is our time and our attention and that's something I hear again and again when I talk to futurists you talk to CEOs you talk to I spoke to the ex-CEO of Facebook and it comes back again and again to understand, like one of the primary changes that has happened recently that it doesn't feel like we have quite caught up with yet mm. is that attention is now the primary currency. Yes. And that sounds unimportant or just mm. boring. But when you really look, like if you really owned the fact that my attention is my primary currency, more so than money, more so than time, if my attention is my primary currency, A, how am I spending it? And B, know that every single business on the planet is spending billions of dollars trying to get your attention so that they can then on-sell your attention to somebody else. Absolutely. And there's this amazing phrase that someone said to me recently. They said, if, if someone isn't charging you for the product, you, are the, you product. are the product. Yes. And I think that knowledge, for me at least, that knowledge really flipped things where you start going, okay, hang on. If my attention is being unsold, I'm going to take back control of this mm. and choose where I spend it and where I put it mm. because if it's my only currency. Yeah, and there's a great um, quote. I, I want to get his surname correct and, and we can hopefully look it up, but his first name is definitely James Glyke. And he says, because information has become cheap, attention has become expensive and our number one commodity. And it really is tying back to this idea, infobicity, it, you know, information is readily accessible um, this is why we have you know kids experiencing techno tantrums because information is now instantaneous it is portable um, it's accessible and so we've got a wealth of information so our capacity to manage direct and control our attention is the most I believe it's the most important asset that we now have so let's let's talk about guilt let's, let's move back to <laughs> move back to guilt you have you have two children mm -hmm. uh, and, a, and a third child, <laughs> very close, very close to arriving. Um, and you have said that whether we love it or whether we loathe it, loathe it technology is, 
is here to stay. Mm. And all too often you hear lines like, I failed as a mum because I let my baby watch TV. Mm-hmm. I, I let my toddler use the iPad. I feel so guilty. I'm a bad mum because my son would rather play Fortnite than build a fort. Mm. Um, and I think we, as a parents, we all relate to that mm. in some way, shape or form. How, how, do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, and I'm the first to say, I, I don't feel techno guilt. My kids, and I'll be totally transparent, my kids do use technology. So I'm not about digital amputation. I don't think banning it or demonising technology is the solution because the reality is our kids are going to inherit a digital future. So our job, I believe, as parents is to teach kids how they can use technology in healthy and helpful ways. But that's really difficult to do because as parents, we have no frame of reference. We can't think back to our childhoods and think about how our parents dealt with the digital dilemmas we're facing because the technology keeps growing and evolving exponentially. We can't even ask friends with slightly older children how they dealt with the digital dilemmas that we're now facing because the the technology, again, wasn't around when their children um, were growing up. So I think as, as parents, we have very romanticized notions of what childhood and adolescence looked like. And for most of us, we had predominantly analogue childhoods. We stared at the sky, not at a screen. We spent time with people, not with pixels. But today, childhood and adolescence looks very, very different. We know kids are being dunked into the digital world from earlier and earlier ages. And I think it's with any technology that's been introduced to society. When it's first introduced, there is this natural moral panic. When the printing press was introduced, we were told all communication was going to be eroded. When rock and roll music came in, a whole generation of teenagers were going to become morally corrupt because they were listening to music. So I think a natural tendency is for us to demonise whatever it is that's new because we have no frame of reference. So I think part of this is just a normal adjustment process. However, having said that, technology is having a really profound impact on our kids' adolescents and even us as adults. And without that frame of reference, we are tr- we are literally in uncharted territory. We're often making digital decisions on the fly. You know, how much screen time do I give them? Do I pass over my phone to my toddler in the, the waiting room? Do I hand over the digital pacifier just to have a moment of respite so I can, you know, finish the email that I need to send at home? We are trying to grappling with this. And there are, unfortunately, a lot of myths, misinformation and misnomers out there. There is a whole lot of unnecessary guilt Um, and we are this is where it's also another really interesting juncture in time is because this is the first time in history where a generation of kids even really young kids um, but particularly older kids and adolescents know way more about a topic than what their parents do so the parenting dynamic has really shifted the 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 if we want to use that word power or that the relationship has really changed. So my big message again for parents is not to ban technology, not to demonize it, is to get our kids to use it, but to use it in healthy ways. And and I speak to parents about being the pilot of the digital plane and not the passenger. And as the pilot of the plane, you help your child with firm boundaries around what they can use and access, when they can play it, um, where they can use it and how they can use it so that they can start to develop these healthy relationships with it. But we need our kids to be able to use it, not just to ban it or to sort of demonise it. Um, so it's a, empowering parents to make those decisions. It's and thank you for mentioning using iPhones in waiting rooms that came from me <laughs> just sharing an experience where yesterday morning I was in a hospital waiting room with my daughter and she was ripping up the ripping hospital trolleys and <laughs> and so you know you just I I say you 
Let's own it. I <laughs> got out my iPhone. I've got a ca- cartoons on my iPhone, and she's only allowed those. Um, usually, the rules is on on long car journeys or on planes. Mm-hmm. Got it out. Sat her down. Means that I could have, I could have my blood test without her wriggling on my lap. But then you then have to take the iPhone away in the middle of a waiting room and watch the, <laughs> watch the drama unfold. <laughs> and so you, you, I'm not quite sure how to frame this question. What do, those, what do those, what can those boundaries look like so that they are clear? Because we're not always dealing with, you know, teenagers are a little bit easier to negotiate mm-hmm. with. But we're not always dealing with brains that are able to understand that this particular situation, it's okay. But in this one, mm. it's not okay. Mm. How do you manage those boundaries? Look, and you've identified something really pertinent, that boundaries will change constantly um, as your children progress in age and, and developmental milestones. And what you described your daughter having is what I colloquially call the techno tantrum. And I think parents of all ages, this is not just something that two and three-year-olds have. I have seen 18-year-olds. I've actually sat on a plane recently where a female adult passenger threw a techno tantrum, refusing to turn her phone off so we could actually leave the runway. Um, And again, it's understanding how these technologies prey on our psychological weaknesses, how they cause neurobiological changes in the body. So what I suggest at a really practical level with parents, with little ones, it is hard to explain those extenuating circumstances. You know, mummy's having a blood test today, so we will use... The, the phone, but ordinarily we won't. So I think communicating your boundaries in advance works really well. Um, then and when it comes to, to sort of taming that behaviour and trying to help with the, the emotional meltdown that's happening in the waiting room, um, I think what we need to start, simple things we do, and again going back to how the brain is wired, um, one of the reasons we get the techno tantrum is because kids' brains getting dopamine, um, which is that that pleasure neurotransmitter. So when we tell them that they've got to turn off Peppa Pig or whatever it is that they're watching, we're literally truncating their dopamine supply. So we can help to boost their dopamine by getting them to do something physically active. We know physical activity starts to release the dopamine and serotonin that makes them feel good. For little kids, it can also be the diversional therapy that you're trying to deploy at that point in time. Um, physically touching your child you know when they are combusting and being very frustrated this also works with adolescents that are refusing to you know put their phone down or turn off the gaming console that they've spent eight hours playing physically touching them it actually works with partners I don't recommend this in workplaces because you will breach every OH&S policy there is Um, but physically touching them either on the arm on the forearm on that magical spot between their shoulder blades actually helps their brain release um, a hormone called oxytocin and oxytocin is the love hormone so it is really difficult when you're having a disagreement with your partner for you to touch them and for them to still be agitated with you their brain is releasing that oxytocin so there are really practical things like that that we can start to do um, to help them particularly with kids whose perhaps language skills are still developing and their reasoning skills um, are are still developing but understanding again understanding their brain just like us this is why we find it so hard you know to put our phone down because we're getting hits of dopamine Um, this is why we go off on our holidays and try and find the one bar of Wi-Fi signal on our remote holiday destination just so we can check our inboxes. Um, So understanding our brain is craving that dopamine or we're finding it hard to switch off. Just let's flip it just for a second because I think that there 
it's very easy, and I know that this isn't what you do. It, it's very easy to have this, as you've said, mm-hmm. demonizing digital. Mm-hmm. Demonizing digital, com- you know, it's controlling our brains. The entire intention of it is to rob us of our intention, attention and presence. I also feel like, and I'll go back to a personal experience again, and I know that people have kids of, of all ages, but just last week I was going to find a new daycare for my child. And I noticed the difference in approach that myself and my husband had. So I went in and I was looking for, I went into digital demon mode in my head and I'm looking for outdoor areas. I'm looking for wooden play forts. I'm looking for paints. I'm looking for, and my husband walked in. It was so interesting. And he was like, is that one of those magic boards? (laughs) They're amazing. And he wanted to know how she, how this particular environment was going to help her adapt to a digital world, mm. how it was going to introduce digital to her life and, and help her use it to become more curious, help her use it to become more interested and also become more connected. Mm. You know, one of the amazing things that digital has given us is the ability to feel connected to people and cultures all over the world. And to go really big picture there for a second, it's it will be much harder, I believe, societally to explain to an adult why we should go to war with a particular mm-hmm. culture or a particular society if they have spent a portion of their childhood, you know, conversing with or being, you know, partner schools with a class in that society. Mm. You know, there's, it also wires our brain beautifully, I think, for empathy. So, there's the positives and there's the negatives. Do you have any guidance around how you weigh that up? Like how you prepare children for a world where I think, you know, the stats that I have is that 77% of jobs will require some degree mm. of technological skill by 2020. Mm. How do you ramp them up to it, but how do you still keep them mm. protected from it? Yeah, look, there's no magical formula. There's no sort of, sorry, (laughs) bearer of bad news. What I often say to parents is um, that we need to balance what I call screen time and green time, the analogue and the, the, the digital worlds. And the reality is that, as you've suggested, our kids will inherit this digital future. So what we need to do is to, to get the, the and I, I cringe when I say this word, to get the balance, or I'd prefer to use the word the blend right, what we need to do is make sure that when kids are using technology, that first of all, that it's age appropriate, that they're not using it excessively, but the bigger or the next most important step is to look at what it's displacing. And this is where we can get rid of the techno guilt and the techno shame, is that if we are reassured that our kid, whatever age they are, um, if their basic developmental priorities are being met, so they're spending enough time sleeping, playing, being physically active, if they're socialising, developing language and play skills, that technology isn't necessarily going to erode their development because their fundamental needs are being met first. But the problem that we're seeing currently in Australia is that many kids aren't meeting their developmental priorities because screen time is being used excessively or inappropriately. And I think this is why we're there with this sort of this moral panic about kids and teens and their screen infatuation because it is encroaching on their developmental needs. And, and I mean, again, the neuroscience tells us that it doesn't matter if a child was born in 1970 or 2012, their fundamental developmental priorities haven't shifted. Um, but the way that technology is being introduced is 
impinging on that again if we're not in control of it so I think you know reassuring ourselves that yes if if we use technology and that's the, the thing I'd love to impart we have ample research evidence that tells us that kids um, you know from from about 18 months can actually learn from a screen before that their brain is pretty much incapable yes they'll sit there quietly and look very infatuated you know at what they are watching we even see newborn babies you know twisting their heads into all sorts of different ways to try and pick up the, the TV um, but before 18 months there's very little evidence that tells us that kids can actually learn from a 2D screen and connect that to a 3D world but after that we do have research evidence that tells us that if kids are using technology that is age appropriate that is used in intentional ways that they can actually benefit from it so I think we need to demystify this belief that technology because it's new is bad and it's compromising them if we know that it's well designed and that their other fundamental needs and priorities are being met then there's no sort of sense of panic um, around that. So just getting really practical with that what questions would you be asking so if you're going to a new daycare you're going to even employing a nanny you're going to a primary school a high school you name it, if you're introducing your child into an environment and trying to pick the best environment for them, what questions would you be asking about that blend to the carers? I think going back to what we know our most fundamental human need is, and that is the need for relational connection, um, you know, talking about the relationships, how they're fostered in whatever care environment you are choosing, um, then looking at what opportunities. We know one of, again, one of our fundamental human needs is for physical movement. We are, are biologically wired to move and developing brains in particular, um, we know up until about three to five years of age, 85% to 90% of brain architecture is formed in the those years and we know that most of that that uh, learning takes place through physical movement this is why I believe we need warning signs in cafes saying do not bring your three-year-old in here and expect them to sit still they are biologically wired to knock over the sugar dispenser spill the glass of water pick up the paper serviette and make paper mache as they attempt to clean it up why they their brains are wired for two things for movement so for, for physically being engaged and for sensory stimulation. They need to figure out you know, where their bodies are, what things smell like, taste like. So making sure those fundamental skills are being, me- are being met sorry, is really critical. But we're seeing this even in adults. You know, we, This is why we need adults who are predominantly sedentary to engage in more physical activity because we've done MRI scans and look, brains that um, have, have much more sophisticated brain architecture if the person, the adult, is physically active so again just going back to what are those fundamental needs that we have as humans and how can we use technology how can we accommodate technology into those basic needs so that it's not derailing anyone's health and well-being particularly our kids when we know they're again at that very vulnerable age and is that a new question I mean it's certainly not a question that our parents would have ever had to ask which is you at what age are you introducing digital mm. learning to my child at you know, do you have, I know at, at daycare they often have you know, old mobile phones mm. that they're able to walk around with. Role play. Hold. Yeah. Mm. At, at high school, you know, what boundaries do you have around mobile phone usage, um, in classes, between classes? Mm. How do you, what boundaries do you set around social media? What policies do you have around cyberbullying? You know, these are all questions that we suddenly have to, A, come up with. Yes. What are the questions? And B, start asking and then be able to make sense of the response. Mm. Is, there, is there a list 
Is there a list of questions? Is there? Do you have a list of questions? I, I don't. Um, we do have government guidelines when it comes to screen time. Uh, these guidelines were updated last year and they, they uh, were a response to parents, carers and health professionals saying, look, parents are grappling with technology and the big issue of screen time and they're looking for some quantitative evidence to say, you know, how much. And, and I think the conversation has been... I would say, obsessing about how much screen time. And it is definitely important. I think we all universally accept that too much of anything is not a good thing. And if our kids, again, are spending too much time on, on screens, it is going to have a displacement effect. I often say to parents, screen time has an opportunity cost. So again, if their fundamental needs are being met, we don't need to worry about it. But if it's superseding or interfering with those, it is a, a risk. But my big concern is that if we obsess over how much, we're missing the bigger picture. How much is only one piece of the puzzle? You know, we can have a child who adheres to, so in Australia at the, at the moment, our, and I can feel parents who are probably listening to this going to experience pangs of guilt. I did not write these guidelines. I don't endorse them. I, I actually think um, they don't give us sufficient guidance because they only focus on one metric and that is time. But the, the current recommendations say no screen time whatsoever for not to two-year-olds. So that's no television, no iPads, no smartphones, absolutely no exposure whatsoever. For two to five-year-olds, it's no more than one hour a day. For five to 12, in fact, for five to 17-year-olds, the recommendation is for no more than two hours of entertainment media per day. Now, that lulls parents into a false sense of security in some instances because their child might be adhering to the quantitative measure that we're suggesting is appropriate, but we need to look at what. What are they doing? Is it age appropriate? Are they being introduced to social media prematurely before they have the emotional skills? Um, you know, one of the big risks facing our boys at the moment is gaming. You know, it's the new F word in, in many family homes, the, the game Fortnite, um, and looking at the problematic behaviours with, with some of those games because of, again, the way they're designed and the way that we know that the developing brain responds. Um, so looking at, at what they're playing, also looking at when. We know parents need guidance around when kids use technology. So I say to parents, instead of obsessing over the how much, yes, it's important, what we need to look at are the other questions and they are what, when, where kids use technology, with whom they're using them, and also how, because we're seeing technology is having a, a massive, um, massive impact on their physical health and well-being. We're seeing increasing rates of myopia in young children and adolescents, which is nearsightedness. We are worried. Um, the World Health Organization estimates that 1.1 billion people will suffer from noise-induced hearing loss because of incorrect headphone use. Um, there are a whole lot of possible and I really stress that word, possible health risks associated with electromagnetic radiation. So again, having firm boundaries around all of those aspects, what, where, when, how and with whom, um, is really important at, at helping our kids again, developing those healthy relationships. So let's, well, let's get into that. Let's, let's, talk about, um, let's talk about how. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the how. Um, you, you've been a big proponent of the term digit, well, digital bedtime, having mm -hmm. a digital bedtime. And I also read something that you wrote recently about digital teddy bears. Mm -hmm. Can you 
expand on that? Look, and I think so much of this, it's interesting. My work is predominantly, sorry, was up until about 18 months ago, predominantly speaking to parents of kids right from preschoolers to secondary school. But in recent times, I'm speaking to more and more adult audiences because I think many of us recognise that we're not immune to the digital pool and that our technology habits as adults are perhaps not as exemplary as what they should be. So what we know, um, we, we now know that many adolescents are now sleeping with their phone either adjacent or underneath their pillow. We recently did a survey with um, upper primary and adolescent girls and we asked them about their screen habits and we were expecting a lot of their responses. What we hadn't expected was that many girls now tell us they're putting their phone in a Ziploc bag so that they can take it into the bathroom because the threat of being digitally disconnected for that five to ten minutes that you're having a shower is akin to cutting off their oxygen supply. So this is why they are sleeping with their digital teddy bears. They are, are using these devices in you know problematic ways. And when it comes to sleep, um, this is having a profound impact on both the quality and quantity of our sleep. Um, I'm working with some people who, at the moment, we're trying to raise awareness with the government that sleep is actually a health epidemic um, for adults for adolescents, but even at a primary school level, um, teachers throughout the country are anecdotally telling me that increasing numbers of kids are falling asleep. And not because they're boring teachers and that their instructional methods aren't exciting. It's because kids, not only because of screens, but screens are definitely a contributing factor to poor quality and quantity of sleep. And so you're, um, I mean, again, some of the stats I've pulled from, from your work here 70% of 14-year-old girls get insufficient sleep, with many accumulating only five hours of sleep a night. Even small declines in the amount of sleep um, have a significant impact on learning. 30 minutes less sleep a night can reduce a child's IQ by 10 points. I'm not sure if those points relate equally to adults. I'm mm. sure that they do. They do. Um, and so you've talked about having bedrooms as tech-free zones. Mm. One of the, one of the, the guilt-free guidelines yep. is just having a very simple boundary that your bedroom is a, is a mm. tech-free zone. What does, that, what does a tech-free bedroom look like? Because I started to think about that in my own home. And I thought, okay, does that include, obviously includes devices. Well, I've got parents with teenage boys who have gaming consoles. Mm in their room what exactly does that include look in an ideal world we would say we would have all technology removed from the bedroom so handheld devices televisions one of the reasons is because we want the brain to associate the bedroom as adults i'm not saying this certainly with adolescents but the bedroom we, we form a brain association that the bedroom is where i sleep and possibly have sex they're the, the only two activities that are performed in that particular room for optimal sleep again i'm not saying that i don't want adolescents listening to this and saying <laughs> I know that I think can most open adults Pandora's would listen, box. To, would listen to that and go, really? Yeah. Especially anybody with young children. In theory, I'm saying. <laughs> um, but we, we know um, that, that technology, particularly handheld devices, um, such as tablets and smartphones, emit blue light. Blue light suppresses the body's production of melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. So this results in sleep delays. So it's taking all of us, kids and adults, um, a lot longer to fall asleep if we have been using devices before bed. Um, the other thing that technology does, particularly handheld devices, because they tend to be interactive. We're responding, we're liking, we're typing email responses, etc. cetera. 
is that it can hyperarouse the brain. So we need calm time before we go to go to sleep. So we know that's one of the ways that they're impacting on the, the quantity of sleep. It's taking us longer to fall asleep. This is particularly amplified. It's really interesting um, with parents of teens and preteens. Um, we know that biologically the um, preteen and teen um, circadian rhythms change. They naturally start to want to fall asleep later. That has always been the case in history. Um, as they hit puberty, their circadian rhythms naturally change. What has now impacted that even for, further and has um, amplified this is that it, many of our preteens and teens are using devices, handheld devices particularly. They're on their smartphones before they go to bed. Many of them are doing homework or online assignments before they go to bed. And so this is further exacerbating this circadian pushback because the blue light delays the onset of sleep as well. So it's a double whammy for kids in, in that particular age bracket. The other way we know that screens are compromising all of our sleep is that it's the, the quality of the sleep. So each night when we sleep, we go through five stages of sleep and most of us repeat those five stages four to six times. We cycle through those, those five stages. But if we have a device present in the bedroom, especially if we're still getting alerts and notifications, which many of us are, a study came out recently telling us that up to 70% of us are checking email intermittently throughout the night. Um, but regardless of whether we're checking it, just the constant distraction of the device in the bedroom means that instead of going through our completed stages of sleep, our sleep get, gets dislocated. So say we get an alert or notification between stages three and four, we jump back into bed, have a glass of water, go back to sleep, we start all the way back up at stage one. So we're not getting into the deep sleep stages of stages four and five, and that's when memory consolidation occurs. So this is why, I don't know if you remember, Julie, in the early stages of having a baby, sometimes you might have very occasionally nailed seven hours sleep, but you got up 18 times to pat a bottom or find a dummy or pacify a child and you wake up chronically tired the next day. You haven't had those completed sleep cycles. And this is what many of us are doing. Even if we do have a, a device in our bedroom, you know, the laptop lid might be shut, but it's next to the bed or it's on the desk that's in, in the room. It is a mental trigger for us to start thinking about technology. So again, impacting on our sleep. That was going to be my my next question actually which is does it just because I literally had this debate with my husband <laughs> does it only does that only happen and again that's massive because if you look at adults your ability to consolidate memory is important but you look at adolescents especially during exam time you look at young children their ability to consolidate memories to learn is is a is a primary vital vital function does an iPhone, let's just say my husband's point was, well, if I put it on, if I put it on airplane mode, then can I have it in the bedroom? Because he, he wants it as an alarm clock. Does that have the same impact if, it, if it's not digitally connected? Absolutely. So that will, will be a really positive step. So often what I say is if we're going to introduce changes, going in cold turkey or making radical changes won't work. So that would definitely be an intermediary step, I would say, particularly if you've got adolescents who say, I need it, um, turning off all alerts and notifications. Um, with iOS and um, Android devices now, Android have a function called digital wellbeing. iOS have a new function called screen time and you can actually set up um, it to go into a nighttime or a bedtime routine. So you, again, using the benefits of the technology, it will do the, the heavy lifting for you if you set those boundaries up 
yourself so you can have clear cutoff times where you won't be getting pings and alerts and notifications. My next step after that one would be to put it out of eyesight. So can you, if you do need it in the room for your alarm, can you pop it inside a cupboard so you will still hear it? Or could it be on the other side of the room? Or could it go underneath the bed? Because seeing it again is that mental trigger. You know, I wonder how many likes my Instagram post got. Did my boss reply to my message? Um, and, and again, and really going back to what the, the neuroscience tells us, another thing is that we really shouldn't be using technology, not only because of our, our sleep at night. Um, the other reason we shouldn't be using it is because the way our brain works at night. At night, the, the prefrontal cortex, so the part of our brain that helps us make logical, smart decisions, it manages our impulses, it helps us with our memory, that part of the brain turns off at night. It, it, it shuts down, it powers down. And instead, at nighttime, a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, turns on. So this is why, I don't know if you've noticed, I have. Um, We tend to have more arguments with our spouse at night because, and I often say to people, next time your spouse is picking an argument with you, just say to them, you know, my prefrontal cortex is off, my amygdala is on, we talk about this in the morning, and chances are they'll leave the the conversation there. Works, I have tested this. Um, but Mainly just to go and Google the world amygdala, amygdala, that's right. Um, But again, our emotional brain is on, so this is why we shouldn't be sending client emails late at night because we're not often making those logical decisions. We're often coming from an emotional place. This is why cyberbullying is so prevalent at night. This is why most schools are dealing with cyberbullying issues that took place the night before, the very next morning, because overwhelmingly most kids have access at night and are using it again when their brain, their prefrontal cortex is off and their emotional brain is on. So it's impacting, you know, yes, it's impacting our sleep, but it's also impacting our general well-being if we're not in control of it. And it's a simple tweak that we can make. So yes, airplane mode would be my first step, then out, out, out of sight. In an ideal world, it would be physically out of the bedroom. So let's say that we get there. Yep. We, we, we get to, we somehow set that boundary, or we do set that boundary, as in bedrooms are tech-free zones. Mm. And obviously... If you, the early, I'm guessing you make that decision in a child's life, the easier it is Absolutely. to adhere to. And again, it's, we're just figuring that stuff, this stuff out as we go, as the technology emerges. So what I've got here and also what I've heard anecdotally is about 60 to 90 minutes before bed, mm-hmm. technology should go to what I know you refer to as a landing zone. And I've heard mm-hmm. different parents talk about this and everybody seems to say that this is one of the primary tools that they use, there is a spot in the house where all the charges or there's a docking station, mm-hmm. all phones, all devices have to be docked by a certain time at night and that's the landing zone and they're not allowed to be picked up again until the next morning. Is that well, first, is that something that you have in your own home? We do and it works really, really well most of the time. I will admit I'm not always perfect and neither is my husband, um, but it definitely does work again because it's a, a clear line of demarcation between you know we're going to bed and and this is you know we're going to switch off the devices from a cyber safety perspective for many parents it it gives you that reassurance um, that devices are put away so I had a mum come to a seminar recently and she said look I bought a um, a drying station a sort of era and she said I popped the and and then bought a 20 point charger so the 15 iPads 12 laptops six smartphones all go in there and she could do the digital head count before she went to bed she then got a locksmith around to put a lock on the laundry door where this was and she then slept with the key under her pillow. Now this was 
life-changing for this mother because prior to that, her son, who had problematic gaming issues, was putting his device in there. He would sneak off at one or two in the morning and go back down and, and steal his device without the lock on the door. So then the mum went to the length of sleeping with the router. She would unplug the router and put the router under her pillow at night um, in an attempt to curb her son's problematic behavior so the fact that she slept with a key was a lot more comfortable and she saw it as a solution Um, but it's again developing these habits so that we can start to have these um, boundaries you know having opportunities for white space our brain needs opportunities to daydream and and mind wander Um, I had another mum recently who told me she thought she'd come up with a really ingenious tech hack Um, she had confiscated her son's device Um, he had downloaded something inappropriate and I do talk to parents this is sort of a peripheral conversation I talk about not using screen time as a reward or punishment tool Um, but in this instance a logical consequence for her son's action was for her to take his phone off him he downloaded a contraband app showed his younger sibling so she said to her son I'm taking your device I'm going to charge it tonight Um, I'm going to have it in my bedroom I will charge it for you but I'm going to sleep stark naked and I'm going to sleep on top of the bed covers so you come into my room tonight expect to find me in my naked glory and she was true to her word lying there stark naked feeling very proud of herself thinking I've come up with this ingenious idea to share with all parents about how to manage your kids and teens screen use but she made one fundamental flaw and her son was 10 she forgot to turn his phone off now he did not stop getting alerts and notifications on his phone until 11 45 at night and they started again at 5 30 the next morning so it goes to show us you know young kids aren't developing these habits we have to be the pilot of that plane and help them have these boundaries around it quick other little bonus tip when you are doing the head count at night and checking that the 15 ipads and 12 laptops are there two things make sure one that they're charging the actual device and not just the empty case that many of them do many of them have realized that they can put the case in and the the charger and it looks to be charging the other thing is that particularly if you've got adolescents that hand over the phone without any resistance they don't give you the evil look they don't tell you I hate you you suck you're the worst parent in the world be suspicious because if they hand it over with very little resistance chances are they have a decoy device in their bedroom somewhere else Um, I worked with a boarding school recently who were having some problems with boys um, and their prefrontal cortex not working at night and they were posting really inappropriate things on Instagram so the boarding master decided to buy a safe and all devices went into the safe at the digital curfew um, time except the problem persisted and it was because the boys had all gone out and bought decoy phones so they could continue with their digital pursuits uh, so <laughs> I, you can't no one who's listening can see me but I literally have my head in my hands right now um, and I'll tell you why there was so much in what you just said there the first thing that was there for me is the question of trust. Mm. And so I had, usually before interviews, I naturally get into a topic and I start talking to friends and colleagues about that topic. And I spoke to a friend of mine and a colleague yesterday and he's got three teenage boys, one of which is 18, um, I think 15 and 12. And I was asking him, how do you manage, how have you managed digitally? What do you do and what has worked? And he said a couple of things. The first thing he said is, I've found, I found a way that I believe works for us. And then the second thing he said was, but bear in mind I have three boys. If I had a girl, I think I would just put her in a Wi-Fi bubble and hide her in a room somewhere and never let her out of the house. So it was and wasn't helpful for me as a parent of a, of a girl. But what he said was, 
the most important thing now he has exactly what you have described he has a landing zone he has digital bedtimes he has very clear delineation of sacred space Mm. Sunday afternoons no devices because you need to be getting your head back into the game for the week Mm. and refreshing everything but the most important thing that he said that he had done was he had a conversation with all of his children very early on and I think they that's another question when to hand over a device he had chosen or he and his wife had chosen around 12 13 Mm -hmm. as the age um you're nodding I'm assuming Mm. that's an appropriate age absolutely he had sat them all down and he had said right this is how this is going to work from here on in I trust you completely I trust you completely I won't be in your business I won't be checking your phones I won't be going around your room I won't be demanding that you're my friend on social media however that trust that rope applies until the rules of this house are broken if you start becoming rude if you start talking back if your grades start dropping if I start catching you bullying anyone in any way shape or form if I'm worried that you're being bullied because you're becoming withdrawn then I will be so far in your business you won't even know (laughs) you will not know what to do I will go so far down that rabbit hole and he said I don't know I'm sure there's a lot of parents listening to this going I tried that it didn't work but he said for him Mm. so far and he's got one son that's 18 that had an incredible effect Mm. where they will sit literally sit there and scroll through their Instagram next to him Mm. and their mum, and he can ask who's that what's going on there and that trust line the fact that they know that he won't dive too far into it means that it's opened up conversations and it also means that they seem to be handling it responsibly Mm. I just I feel like whenever this is a long monologue from me because it's been on my mind. I feel like there's almost seems to be two options. Either you go down the trust route with clear boundaries or there is, which is what you were just describing, there would be this endless game of cat and mouse mm. where they are more educated than you. They're going to co- become more educated than you as more and more technology comes out. You're just not going to win. Mm. And have you found that to be true or is that just very naive of me to think that trust is the answer? No, it's absolutely vital. And that's why I say to parents, and I think the example you just provided is a great example of those boundaries being very clearly communicated to the child before they were handed the digital device. And often parents find themselves in hot water because they've bought you know, the iPad or given their child a smartphone, but they haven't actually told them their expectations. They haven't also taught them how to use it respectfully and responsibly. And I think I use the analogy of we wouldn't throw kids in a pool and expect them to know how to swim, nor would we put them behind the, the a steering wheel in a car and hope that they figure it out on their own we provide scaffolding we teach them that we give them guidance along the way and I think that's critical with technology that we communicate our boundaries and our expectations but then I think we also need to be and this is why I use that analogy of being the pilot if we're in the pilot seat we can help them so that when they hit turbulence when they're a victim of cyberbullying, when they're exposed to pornography which we now know is around the average age of eight in Australia um either intentionally or accidentally. I just thought I'd throw that my, one my in. My head is in my hands again. Um, but whatever it is, um, whether they have an online predator approaching them, if they feel that their parent or their carer is in the pilot seat, they feel like they've got rapport and trust and can go to them when they're experiencing that turbulence. But if the parents are way back in economy class, if they're the passenger of their plane and the child is the pilot, when they hit this turbulence, they end up crashing the plane. They don't know how to deal with the cyber bullying. They seek um, support from one of their 
their peers perhaps. And this goes back to what we I just very quickly touched on before is why we shouldn't, um, and I try not to should on parents. I should have said that at the, the beginning. I think we get should on all the time. Um, but this is a topic I really feel quite passionate about. Um, we really need to avoid, I'm going to say, using screen time as a reward or punishment tool. I was going to get into because, that because Tell me why. Well, two reasons, a, a couple of reasons. I'll, I'll go with the, the punishment first. If there is a threat that you're going to confiscate their device, you're going to take the PlayStation away from them, you're going to ban TV for a month. When they hit turbulence, they won't come and tell you. We know that in most, in fact, we're estimating it's about 90% of cyberbullying cases, even though programs in school now from primary through secondary tell kids that when you're a victim of cyberbullying, go and tell a trusted adult. 90% of instances, kids do not because the threat of being digitally amputated is greater than the support that they think they get. Many kids think my parents won't understand, my teachers won't understand and they'll take it off me. Um, So they don't come to us when there is a problem. The flip side of using it as the digital carrot, and I will be transparent, I have and do regularly dangle the digital carrot. So I'm not perfect um, at, at this in any way. I was described in an interview recently as a digital parenting expert and I absolutely cringed because I think anyone who puts those words parent and expert next to each other, it's the ultimate oxymoron. I think anyone who claims to be a parenting expert is, is fooled. And I'm not a digital parenting expert. Um, just as a little aside, my four-year-old son the other day, um, whilst I went to the bathroom very quickly, might I add, um, managed to pick up my unlocked phone. So this is what I call an accident. And um, whilst it was unlocked, he told Siri to change my profile from Christy Goodwin to Stinky Bum Bum. Um, he changed my Google profile from Christy Goodwin to Stinky Bum Bum. So now when I'm responding to some emails, after a period of time, my profile was uh, Stinky Bum Bum. Um, my Wi-Fi password, e- everything connected to my IDs were that. So I'm certainly not a digital parenting expert. Um, but I have dangled the digital carrot, um, you know, tidy your bedroom up before grandma comes over and I'll let you, you know, watch 10 minutes on the iPad. But two things happen. Number one, when we offer screen time as a reward for behavior, it elevates the status of technology. Our kids innately love technology. And if we offer them more and more of it, it puts it on a pedestal. We want kids to see technology as a functional tool, which it is. It lets me communicate. It lets me collaborate. It lets me find information. It lets me produce you know, artifacts. The second thing that it does is if we offer screen time as a reward, and I'm talking here, and it's a very clear line of demarcation, as the pilot of the plane, you need to have firm boundaries around what has to happen before the technology gets switched on or, or, or when it's switched on, etc. Those boundaries are always communicated in advance. When I'm talking about it being used as the reward or the digital carrot, it's that if you're nice to your sister, I'll let you have the iPad. If you unpack the dishwasher, I'll let you. And our kids see this, it develops a transactional relationship between us and our kids. And our kids very quickly realize what's in it for me. And they'll start saying, I'll set the table if you let me and list off their their digital contingencies um, as they wish. So really important. I think communicating our boundaries to our kids in advance, um, but then um, being there as that pilot to help them to navigate this because, again, they're, they're figuring out, as I think many adults are, how to use this respectfully and responsibly as well. As you're talking, the the metaphor of junk food is coming mm. is coming into my mind. You know, if we if you do this, we will we will go to McDonald's. Suddenly, that elevates McDonald's in mm. their eyes as as the place to go if you're offering it as a reward. Um, and also, not having clear boundaries around the type of food we eat and when mm-hmm. we and when we eat it. You know, that's not everyday food. Yeah. 
that's, you know, we have pizza on a Friday night. We, however you choose to do it, that's party yep. food, whatever language you choose. So let's, let's touch very, very briefly on, you've called it techno tantrums, just because I think it's realistic. Now, you know, you have said, I've heard you say that you don't expect to do this and be someone's favorite person. Mm. You know, you can't go into this with the belief that that's what's going to happen. There's going to be techno tantrums. You are going to be the worst person in the world Mm. from two to 20. (laughs) Honestly, if we're still having to have these conversations with someone's 20, how do you manage that? You're setting boundaries. It might be the first time. It might be the 50th time Mm -hmm. you, you get pushback, whatever that pushback is. Is there language that parents can use? Is there a way of handling that pushback so it doesn't blow out of all proportion? Yeah, and again, communicating those boundaries in advance, there's no use trying to negotiate with your child about how long Peppa Pig's going to be viewed for once Peppa Pig's on because they enter something that we know called the psychological state of flow. So they become so enraptured with what they're watching or playing or doing online that your conversation is completely redundant. So I think communicating those boundaries beforehand, then the next tricky part is actually enforcing those boundaries and our kids start to negotiate with us. You know, can I just have one more level? So this is where I say to parents, particularly of young kids, giving them a screen time limit or an amount of time is often a redundant exercise because they enter that state of flow. So even if they can conceptually understand what an hour is or half an hour is, um, they often lose track of time. So instead, um, particularly for kids under eight, I recommend giving them quantity. So you can get, you know, you can watch two episodes of this or you can get to this level in the game gives them quantitative, really hard, fast endpoints to when they'll end. The other thing we need to do is to help them transition. And, and one of the things I say to parents, again, if we know that what they're doing in most instances is pleasurable on a screen, which it is for most of us adults, we need to help them cope with the dopamine that they're not going to get when they're off it. So I often say to parents, have an appealing transition activity, you know, choice of two. When you turn off the iPad, do you want to go on your scooter or jump off the trampoline? Or knowing what your child likes, you know, do you want to read a book? Or would you like to go and have a shower? Something that you know will help them calm down. The other thing we need to do is to, it sounds very fancy, it's called cognitive priming. It basically means warn them, warn them that their screen time is going to end. Because for many of us, I don't know about you, but I would be devastated if my husband came in through midway through a really good Netflix show I was watching and demand that I turn it off, I'd be quite irate. And the same, we do that to our kids. You know, oh, it's quick, you know, we've had your hour or, you know, we're off to grandma's house, turn it off. They haven't had that time to mentally prepare. So I think giving our kids some of those strategies to cope and giving us, I guess, too, the strategies to cope. The next thing, so establishing those boundaries, enforcing those limits, is to have, um, again, this is not punishment, but to have logical consequences. So when your child emotionally combusts every time you try and digitally disconnect them, saying to them, we're not watching, you know, you're not going to have it tomorrow because you didn't behave, you didn't switch off. And kids very quickly over time realise how to behave in more socially appropriate ways. Isn't that using digital as a punishment? It's not a punishment because it's a logical consequence. Consequence. With the punishment, it's you hit your brother, no iPad for a month, or you've um, been, you know, performing poorly at school, no PlayStation. The the boundaries of, and again, that's why I said it's a very clear line of demarcation. It's communicating those rules in advance and explaining what will have to happen before it's turned on or after it's switched off for it to be a successful use of it. It's the using it as the, the carrot or the stick in that instance where we need to be careful. So let's let's move from 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 managing it as parents, managing it as parents, where 
as you've said, you know, you've got digital bedtimes, you've got landing zones, you've got expressing those expectations and boundaries at the very beginning, if you can, if not as soon as possible, and then managing the Mm-hmm. the offshoot mm-hmm. of the consequences <laughs> the drama the meltdown of that let's now go on to modeling let's go back to using digital as parents because I know I know for me this is one where I I flip and flop and change you know there's some days where I go right that's it I'm going to as soon as I get home my phone is in the landing dock everything is off I'm going to be a hundred percent committed present parent in every moment where I'm home and that's absolutely doable and I know that it's it's some people's choice I think I've found that for me that ex that separation between this is work me Mm -hmm. and this is home me and many people might disagree I found that that's not 100% practical Mm. that there's there's just me. Mm. There's just me. And it created so much guilt in my world to feel like as soon as I walked through the door, I had to quickly change out of my work clothes and change it to mum clothes so that I was mum. That I had to pretend that I had no life outside of being home, pretend like I had no interests. <laughs> and I probably, you know, took that too far. However, there is this blend between, you know, mummy's just... And nanny's not very well right now. Mm. Mummy's just checking on nanny to make sure she's okay, sending nanny a text message. Or um, I could give you a, a ton of examples. Where is the line of that separation from a digital parenting mm. modeling perspective? Where's mm. a healthy line? Look, again, you ask a really tr- tricky question and one I wish I had an answer to. There's no prescription and I think what you've alluded to is what many of us wrestle with um, as adults. We call it the digital pull. Um, we, we feel often tethered to technology and one of the reasons is the boundaries between work and home life have now become blurred. I can be at ballet practice, soccer practice, and I can be dealing with a crisis in the office. And, you know, yes, the technology means that I can be you know, solving those problems, but it also means it's encroaching on my family time. And this is where we have to either come up with our own personal policies, but I also think being flexible with them. You know, I know for me, um, there are certain times um, in my business where I do need to be more connected and, and available to my technology, and it's often in the presence of my kids. And I think it's, again, to reduce the guilt that we all feel about this. I think we need to, our kids need to see us use technology. They definitely do. And I think a simple strategy that I think you perhaps suggested you're doing is actually articulating like verbalizing what we're doing because often our kids just see the back of the device and many older kids think oh she's on a phone again or she's on Instagram or she's playing whereas if we can often explain to them we're using it in a functional way they're often more likely to to see what we're doing um, so I think it comes back to um, establishing those boundaries for us uh, for our, for ourselves what works for us um, and communicating that to our kids The other part of it is that if we don't communicate this to our kids, our kids have, all of us in our brains have something called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons mean we are biologically wired to imitate. This is why from 15 minutes of being born, a baby will poke its tongue back out at you if you poke it out at them. We are biologically wired to copy. This is why we've got little kids that walk up to any sort of screen and swipe and tap at it because they're under the assumption that it's a touchscreen device. So we need to be careful at at, at the the role modelling we're doing. Many 
of us as parents, you know, are demanding that our kids switch off their devices, but we're barking those you know, those orders from behind our phone. So I think it's modelling those behaviours and having personal policies, um, but again, being flexible with those, knowing that at certain times or in certain situations. The other thing I think we need to be careful about judging other people. Um, in my book, I, I shared an example of a, a man um, who'd been unemployed. He was at the park with his daughter. He had just received a call for a job offer. He picked up his phone while supervising his daughter and tried to arrange somebody for babysitting the next day so he could attend the interview. A, um, another person at the park took a photo of this man on his phone and posted it on social media, uh, criticising him and his habits, saying you know he was a disconnected, unpresent dad because he was on his phone. We never, ever know anyone's full story. Um, and so I think we need to be careful about not. And I think as a parent, we'd appreciate that too. You know, the glaring eyes at the doctor's surgery when you have handed over the digital pacifier. Um, you know, we never, ever know anyone's backstory and full story as well. So I think ditching that judgment can help everybody <laughs> so ditching the ditching the judgment for ourselves mm. trying to you know deciding okay when is sacred time and yeah. then knowing when you know if, if grandma is sick or if there's, there's a job offer explaining that to our family and saying this is there's something I need to do I'm going to be not present mm. for a, for a period of time here I want you to know what it is that I'm doing and why mm. I believe it's important um and I also feel there's something there around inclusion of passion. Mm. Um, I had a, another situation recently where it was a Sunday morning. Sunday mornings is a time in our household where watch cartoons on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning is cartoon time. Mm-hmm. Any other time, this is a separate topic, any other time I find that this weird hypnotic thing happens. Digital zombie state. Yeah, d- mm-hmm. exactly that. <laughs> so... There are other times during the week where TV is allowed, but it's, I would call it human beings. It's Mm -hmm. human beings or animals. Mm -hmm. Cartoons only happen on Sunday morning because that state, Mm -hmm. quite frankly, freaks me out. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, I have an interview coming up tomorrow. I need to do a little bit of research for it. It was for a dancer. And so I sat there, family watching cartoons, pulled out my phone. I was doing a, watching this dancer dance and listening to a couple of interviews with her. And my daughter came over. And my first instinct was to judge myself. Oh, my goodness. I'm sat here with my family on a Sunday morning. I'm on my phone. What a horrible person I must be. And, and I just I caught that just in time. And she asked me, what, you know, Mommy, what are you doing? And I said, you know, Mommy's watching this beautiful dancer, this beautiful dancer in India because she's going to talk to her tomorrow. And look at her. Isn't she amazing? And I'm just watching her dance um, because I want to meet her. And she watched her dance for like 30 seconds. And then she said, oh, I don't know, beautiful or something. And then she went off Mm. and did her own thing. Mm. Is that to include your child in your passions rather than keeping them, as you said, this is the back of my phone. Mm. You need to know no more about what it is that I am doing. Is that a good idea? Absolutely. There's actually a whole lot of um, research around this. They call it um, joint media engagement or um, co-viewing. And there's so much evidence that tells us that particularly young kids 
um, gain huge amounts when they use technology with somebody else. So when television is used in close proximity with an adult sitting down, and, and this is why I say to parents of adolescents, you know, show an interest. You may not want to spend four hours playing Fortnite, but play half a game with your child so that you show you have a vested interest. Again, it stops the behavior from being driven underground. Um, but it really helps to foster that idea that we can use it. I mean, many of us remember growing up, I remember we used to have DV, or they were VHS nights, but we'd all sit around and, and media was a shared experience. The reason this has become more challenging to do is because we've got one-on-one personalized individualized devices so I think if we can capitalize on those moments and this is where technology is brilliant you know watching a, a dancer on your phone was something we could never have done years ago and imagine the world you're opening up to your daughter by exposing her to that so I think that circles back to what we talked about when we very first started this conversation what are we doing with these devices is is it is it leisure is it learning is it helpful um, and then I think we can ditch that guilt because we're actually using it in that instance it's a perfect example of using it in a functional way um, so we don't need to feel riddled with the the guilt and the angst and I love the point that you made there about setting it up first so mm. if you're going to your child's swimming carnival and there's a chance you might have to take a phone call on something that's very urgent to prep your child for that so Absolutely. that they don't look up and see you just on your phone. Yes. You know, there is a chance mummy or daddy might have to take a phone call yep. during this. I want you to know that it, it will be, mm-hmm. you know, even as the words come out of my mouth, I feel guilt for that entire <laughs> interaction. But without that technology, chances are that parent wouldn't, wouldn't have, have been, been there. there in the first instance. So this is where I think we need to measure our judgment and our self-criticism. And I think parents are often so hard on ourselves um, that, 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 that technology is affording a relationship we would have otherwise not had um, or, or that opportunity, sorry, to, to be present at the swimming carnival. In years gone by, you know, we wouldn't have had parents there. So it's that, and again, that's where it's that double-edged sword that, yes, I can be there, um, but am I really there? Um, and that's where, again, you know, if there are extenuating circumstances and where we need to be, again, in control, do I really need to take that call? Is it, you know, vital that I take it at that moment or could I reschedule it so that I can be at the carnival and again using tools now we've got tools that will sync with our calendar so we can say look this is personal time I'm scheduled at this particular time and you can personalize in your calendar any personal events it will automatically set do not disturb up on your phone so that you cannot receive calls during that time or you can even set your profile up so that during that personal time your personal assistant your mother the preschool can ring you in those hours. So we, again, using the benefits that technology offers us so we can control those boundaries and parameters that we want to enforce. I think many of us think we have to be tethered to our phones the whole time when in actual fact we don't. You know, we could perhaps have been at that carnival if it wasn't, you know, a critical call that we had to take at that time. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas 
tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.